from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Department of Homeland Security has a new hiring system to recruit cybersecurity talent. The Cyber Talent Management System changes DHS's hiring and retaining processes and modernizes federal firing. Those changes include a streamlined hiring process, increased compensation and incentives, and career development opportunities. The goal of the cyber service is to protect critical infrastructure and increase the nation's cyber resilience. President Biden signed the bipartisan infrastructure deal into law, and the White House has a new executive order that will outline the administration's implementation priorities and establish an infrastructure implementation task force. Some of those priorities include investing public dollars efficiently, increasing the U.S.'s economic competitiveness, and building infrastructure that can withstand the impacts of climate change. The new task force will coordinate the implementation of these priorities across the government. The General Services Administration has announced 14 new projects that will receive funding through the American Rescue Plan Act. The act includes $150 million intended to support government initiatives to help the country recover and rebuild after the COVID-19 pandemic. A press release from GSA says the work will also improve transparency, security and efficiency by reimagining the delivery of digital services. Unprecedented challenges continue to arise from responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. A new report is out with recommendations for how the government can take action in addressing potential future crises. Richard Green is a visiting fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. He's co-authored a report with Don Kettle and Catherine Barrett called Managing the Next Crisis, 12 Principles for Dealing with Viral Uncertainty. Rich, welcome to the program. Good morning, thank you so much. Your report said this, quote, America's unique form of democratic government posed important challenges in combating the virus. What do you mean? Well, I have to tell you, um, we have had crises since the dawning of the Republic. Uh, however, very few of them tended to be 50 state crises. That was one big difference between COVID. Typically, if you think about a tornado, it may sweep over five states and create huge issues and huge problems. And many of the solutions to those problems, many of the ways to prepare for those problems are the same as you would for COVID. What made COVID different and what made COVID an opportunity uh, for disaster and dismay and death and destruction also made it an opportunity for us to examine, and I'm talking about Don Kethlin, Catherine Barrett, and myself, examine ways to deal with 50 state crises that could be extrapolated out to crises that occur in individual states and individual groups of states. Your report outlines a lot of action items and recommendations. One of them is about the role of data. What type of data would you say was missing in responding to the COVID-19 pandemic? Really pretty much all of it. The truth is that, and again, as I referred to a few seconds ago, this was a 50 state crisis and we needed to know a lot of things. We needed to know what was the value of wearing masks once we started to think about wearing masks. How many cases were there? How many deaths were there? Where were they happening? Were vaccines safe? On and on and on and on. And the answer is, is that the federal government just did not come through in terms of gathering this kind of data on a 50 state basis so that people could react to it. There was no clear cut intelligible data system to track the pandemic. State and local governments tried to step in, 
but they took a whole variety of approaches to measuring the virus. And, and, and one problem when you've got different organizations gathering the data is that you might think that there are different missions going on. For example, if there was a state that was concerned about, uh, about the economy, as the real problem of the of, the, of COVID, then, then they would be gathering data about the economy. And so let's not wear masks because they're bad for the economy. Whereas if they were gathering data about healthcare, then gee, let's wear masks because maybe more people will survive through the COVID. What about the national supply chain? You know, you talked about masks, and I remember when that was a big issue, trying to get things in, and we're still dealing with supply chain issues. What were the, the biggest hurdles then, and how do you approach resolving that issue? I think the biggest hurdle at that point was the idea that Americans have, and that certainly a lot of Americans in government even have, is that in this country, we always have whatever we need. It's always there. And we tend to rely upon individual, individual uh, vendors to supply them for us. And we tend to have just enough, just enough in the warehouses to keep us going. So for example, in, uh, in San Diego County, um, there, were, uh, there were many, many hundreds of thousands of, of, of masks sitting in a uh, masks for, uh, that you could use for an infectious disease that were sitting in a warehouse. And they thought they were all set and that if something happened, they'd take care of it. It turned out when they pulled the masks out, they hadn't been used for a long time. And there were these rubber bands that held them in back and the rubber bands were all dried out. So when they tried to put the masks on, the masks popped off. So they had to, they had to retrofit them with rubber bands. Um, th that's a big problem. Um, the truth is that in terms of, uh, in, in, in terms of the supply chain, there are times when, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting, I'm quoting from, from my favorite TV show, uh, which is West Wing, uh, the president, I'm paraphrasing from President Bartlett. And he said, you know, there are times when there are 50 states and there are times when we're one country and have national needs. And the way I know this, he said, is that Florida didn't fight Germany in World War II or establish civil rights. So the idea and the task of creating workable supply chains falls to the federal government. We can't expect each of the states to do it because if we do, we'll fall short. And Rich, I wonder about the idea of trust in government. What did, your, um, what did the pandemic reveal about that in, in your study? Well, let me back up a little bit if I can. Um, the issue of trust in government has been going on for an awfully long time. The Pew Charitable Trust did a, a study um, back in, I think it was uh, 2017, long before the pandemic. And what they found was that 70% uh, of Americans did not, uh, did not believe in government, have faith in trust in government the majority of the time or all the time at all. So this has been a long ongoing thing. Um, what happened with, with COVID when there was so much fear and so much disillusionment in what was going on, and people saw neighbors passing on and going to the hospital and their relatives couldn't visit them because of the infectious nature of the disease. Um, so there was, there, was, there, was, there was this huge um, lack of faith that government could do anything about it. And this again is not a new thing. I, I just wanna think back to, uh, to floods in small towns. You always hear these stories about how there's a flood and they, the, the, the local government announces, gee, let's all, let's all evacuate and people don't evacuate and people drown. So in this case, um, again, uh, the federal government kind of has to, has to lead um, in order to, uh, in, in, in order to uh, create uh, greater trust in government. But, uh, 
but the but the the one thing that we learned most was that the most effective communications were those not coming from elected officials because really honest to goodness you know people just don't trust elected officials i don't know why um i i trust a lot of them i don't trust all of them um but when you could bring in expert experts uh scientists uh local people who were well trusted those were the people who were trusted and those were the people through whom the government could communicate most effectively all right well rich thanks so much for sharing your report with us i appreciate you being on the program Coming next, cyber hackers are coming to the government as part of a new committee. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how one agency is reaching out to those experts to put up better online defenses. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, plans to put members of the cyber hacking community on a new advisory committee. The goal of that plan is to catch cyber weaknesses before they become an actual breach. Chris Kemiski is former Depu Deputy Undersecretary for Management at the Department of Homeland Security. Currently, he's the CEO of Kemiski Strategic Solutions. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you. So where did this idea come from to, to reach out to the hacker community? Well, it's not an original idea with Jenny Easterly, but it is certainly an innovation of late. Uh, back in 2012, the, there were efforts to approach the hacker community uh, with Jeff Moss, who is the founder of DEF CON and Black Hat uh, Hacker Conventions. And he uh, served at DHS on the Homeland Security Advisory Council for eight years. And so it was a really good start to open the door to the ethical hacking community and having them much more involved in what DHS was trying to accomplish. Okay, so you need to explain ethical hacking community, because when you think of hackers, you think of the criminals. That's right. Often Sometimes it's those who are perpetrating crimes or involved with crim criminal out, uh, outfits or nation states that are the, the hacking community. Uh, but there is a group of hackers, white hat or ethical hackers, that are out there that do want to be supportive of government. They still have a fair amount of skepticism, uh, but that's a good thing when you bring it to uh, threat hunting and, and red teaming and the kinds of penetration testing that the government does need. So what's their motivation to help the government? Because really, they could make a lot of money selling you know, what they find to nefarious actors. No, that's right. And I think part of it is the challenge. You know, the, uh, this started with DOD and NSA who you know, have uh, bug bounties and, and different efforts to you know, hack the Pentagon uh, contests. And I think it was a challenge at first for many hackers that otherwise it would be a criminal enterprise you know, trying to do those kinds of things. Uh, but with the imprimatur of the government on it, they can engage in these kinds of activities uh, and not run afoul of the law. So tell me about how this has been successful elsewhere. You mentioned that this is not a new idea. Has it actually produced? Yeah, I think it has. I think NSA is probably the best example of this, where they've brought the hacking community in, and they've had an opportunity to, to talk about what kinds of penetrations and things of that nature are going on. And so it really is a good uh, opening of the, 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 the door for a lot of those in the hacker community that can be of assistance. So tell me about these conferences that you mentioned, Black Hat and DEF CON. What kind of insights um, do do they uh, I mean what do they do at these conferences yeah. like what are they actually talking about you've been I, yes, I assume. in the past yeah okay. it's, it's really a, a great uh, gathering of uh, talent around cybersecurity and in recent years government has been much more active uh, and prominent in the, the agenda and in speaking roles and so that's why I was glad to see Jenny Easterly as one of her first acts as CISA director was to go to DEFCON and Black Hat and really invite the hacker community to participate in what she's trying to accomplish at CISA so what what are they going to be 
providing to CISA? Like, what are they being asked for, and what's their product, so to speak? Well, as you know, CISA is a fairly new agency. It's only three years old, and so uh, one of the things that they'll be doing is helping with advisory uh, work inside of the department, uh, helping them understand some of the dynamics of you know the, the current threat landscape uh, and what might be emerging on the horizon. And oftentimes, those in the, the hacker community are much more adept or out front on, on knowing what those things are, and so it's a really nice balance. So what are your recommendations then for implementing this uh, advisory council? How do we make it effective for CISA? Well, I think the best thing for it to do is to be inclusive and, and transparent, you know, making sure that these individuals are at the table, uh, but really giving them the opportunity to weigh in and not just have it as window dressing or just another committee uh, at DHS. And I think that the leadership at CISA and the department is serious about doing this. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone out and really opened this door. Because once you do that, and then if you don't deliver on your promises, then that community is going to say, look, we're not going to support this in the future. What are your other ideas, Chris, for working with the private sector, specifically on this issue of cyber and protecting um, critical infrastructure? Well, as we know, 85% of the country's infrastructure is in the private sector's hands, so there's really no way around this. You've got to work with the private sector and really understanding the, the, the threat landscape, the vulnerabilities that they're encountering, particularly these days with ransomware and things of that nature. I think that the government is starting to take steps uh, to you know, have transparency and require reporting, uh, but it's going to take a while to get to a point where you're in the better position across all 16 critical infrastructures. Do you see any problems with this? Do you foresee anything with these, with this um, new advisory council, or is it a win-win for everybody? I think it can be very promising. Uh, the thing is trust, right? They're trying to build trust uh, with the hacking community, uh, and that's always a, a challenge. They're skeptical, as I indicated at the start. Uh, so you've got to really build that over time. Uh, but I think that Jen Easterly and the team at CISA uh, really understands that and has worked with that community for a great deal of time. And so I think that they can build that relationship and, and make it positive for both sides. Any other recommendations, Chris, finally, to um, really strengthen the nation's cyber defenses and, and using the resources that we have. Yeah, I think that the, the EO that the president issued in March was a good step in, the, in that direction. There's another EO that's going to be clarifying roles and responsibilities that Chris Inglis spoke with you about recently. Uh, so I think that having the rules of the road clear and articulated will really help uh, the government uh, when things go wrong. All right. Well, let's hope so, because we all need <laughs> good cyber defenses. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Up next, the number of veterans in the federal workforce is stagnating. Still ahead on Government Matters, how one council is addressing that issue and a look at the benefits of veteran skills in public service. We'll be right back. Veterans make up about 31% of the federal workforce, which hasn't changed since 2014. The Interagency Veterans Advisory Council is looking to boost that number while tackling issues of retention and attrition. Terry Gurton is president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. She's former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy for the Veterans Employment and Training Services at the Department of Labor. Terry, welcome. How are you? Good morning, Mimi. Um, I'm great. And thank you for letting me talk about a topic that is so near and dear to my heart. So as I mentioned, it's 31%, which is almost a third. That seems kind of like a, a good number. Well, I think 31% is a great number. Um, you know, we can always do better, but veterans are such an important piece of our federal uh, government system. They come in knowing so much, and they're such great additions to any team that they join. 
So anything that we can do to make the federal employment system and, and federal employment more welcoming to veterans is a good thing. It also makes the federal system better for everybody. I want to ask you real quick about military spouses because you know, sometimes they do have a hard time because of all the moving around that they have to do when their spouse is in, on active duty. Um, about uh, employment opportunities within the federal government for them. Well, that's true. Military spouses um, have the same sorts of resiliency and adaptability as their military uh, member, right? But they do face that particular challenge of having to move on a regular basis. And that's why the Military Spouse Non-Competitive Appointing Authority in Title V allows federal agencies to appoint certain military spouses without using traditional competitive examining authority. And DOD also has special hiring authority so that they can bring spouses into positions directly on military bases. And so the majority of the spouses, at least those who are identified as such in the federal system, um, do work in the DOD and defense locations. But it's, a, it's an important opportunity and we need to make sure that more spouses are aware of it and that more agencies are aware of it to take advantage of that opportunity. So what skills do you think, Terry, that veterans uniquely have that benefit the government's mission and the workforce? Well, you know, the same characteristics that make veterans attractive in the private sector make them attractive government employees, right? They're, they're high quality people. They have to meet military recruiting standards. Um, they're a highly diverse population. They come from across the country and across every demographic group. They have world-class technical training that they get from their military service. And that makes them um, especially adaptable to a, a number of kind of government positions. But they also, because of military service and because they're working so closely in teams and in challenging situations, they bring that resourcefulness and initiative that you want uh, where people are creative and have new kinds of thoughts and they're incredibly dedicated to the mission. That's one of the things I think that attracts government uh, veterans to government service. And not to mention their leadership skills as well. Exactly. But okay, so they're very attractive to the private sector as well. So what, what can incentivize veterans to stay in government instead of moving to the private sector? Well, I think we need to have reasonable expectations. There is a significant adjustment coming from a military work environment into any civilian work environment, whether that's in the private sector or the public sector. And so there are some best practices that help to mitigate that. One of the first things that um, an, a receiving organization can do is make sure that they understand the military culture and that they are accommodating for that. Not that they have to be a military culture, but they just need to kind of understand where a veteran is coming from. And then um, assignment of a mentor uh, or uh, making sure that that veteran gets connected into a team and has membership feeling with an organization, being very intentional about training and skill development, not just for the job, but for adapt, uh, adaptation into the organization and how it works so that they know what to expect very direct engagement um, of a supportive manager who's working with that veteran, who understands them and is there to help them succeed, and a vision of what a career tra trajectory would look like so that they know kind of what's coming down the road. What we found uh, over time in any kind of civilian work environment was that those kinds of practices really helped get a veteran situated so that they knew what to expect and helped them to be successful. 
And when they're successful, they're more likely to stay. Yeah, drill down a little bit more on the attrition rate. What do we know about that? Um, are veterans, once they come into the federal government, are they staying uh, until retirement? What do we know about that? Well, I think one of the things that um, we see, of course, is veterans tend to come into the work, the civilian workforce a little bit older, and especially if they're coming into government having retired from the military already, which you, know, you can do it at a fairly young age, they, they retire again from federal service. And so there is that kind of turnover. There's also sort of a more natural fit for veterans into government service. It's a place they understand a little bit better than the private sector. So they may come get their feet on the ground and then move either for another government job or for a private sector job. And again, I think we need to be realistic about that. Um, it's a huge transition. It's hard to get it right the first time. And so the more that we can support their um, adjustment and, and adaptation to that new position, the more successful they're going to be, whether they stay with you particularly there or they move to other opportunities. And frankly, one of the things we saw in the data that we looked at is they get promoted faster uh, because once they do get um, adjusted and um, situated in that new position in the government, they move up pretty quickly. And that may mean that they leave your organization and go somewhere else. And we should celebrate that. All right. Well, Terry, thanks so much. I appreciate you being on the program. Mimi, thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to video segments. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.